Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous type, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, so go check it out. Today, our guest is Dr. Camila Cáceres, a marine biologist, shark scientist, and educator. She received her Bachelor of Science in Biology from Duke University and was first introduced to fishery science when she worked as a research assistant at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station, after which she completed her master's and doctoral research in the Height House Lab at Florida International University. Camila's research focuses on small-scale fishing and coral reef sharks and rays in the Caribbean Sea. Welcome to the podcast, Camila. Hi, Elise. Thank you for having me. So I think to start, we'll talk a little bit just about you um, and what originally sparked your interest in marine biology and sharks. Right. Well, for me, I guess I was kind of blessed that I had a passion for the ocean and for sharks at a very young age. I think I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist since I was probably five years old. The first time that I saw the ocean in um, San Andres, Colombia, my native country. Um, And I kind of never gave up on that dream. Um, I loved everything ocean. I think like a lot of young kids, I first was drawn to dolphins and orcas. You know, big uh, free willy was big when I was a kid. And so that was my initial interest as I kind of grew up as a teenager. I was able to volunteer at the local aquarium in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's when I specifically became interested in sharks, just because I noticed how people reacted to them, how much attention it attracted. And I just kind of became really interested in them. I just kind of continued through that with my studies and, um, went all the way with the with the studies as well. Very cool. Yeah, I've done some some aquarium work myself and I do notice how the kids kind of scream when they see the sharks. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, um, aquariums are important for outreach and education. A lot of people wouldn't see a lot of these animals if it wasn't for an aquarium experience. Um, but with sharks, it's just insane how people react. Um, I think it's the sphere of water and the unknown um, because people usually don't react like that with lions and other big wild animals and zoos. Um, And I think it has to do with the fear of the ocean. So you mentioned you're born in Colombia and when did you immigrate to the U.S.? Um, I moved to the United States, North Carolina specifically for uh, middle school and high school. So I was 10 years old when I left Colombia And I always felt, you know, some sort of guilt, even though I was underage and it was not my personal decision at the moment to immigrate. I always felt like I wanted to give back to my country um, and I felt some sort of guilt for kind of um, leaving. So when I had the opportunity to pick the sites for my Ph.D. studies, I really wanted one of them to be in Colombia. And I was lucky enough to go back and be able to do a research project there on uh, sharks and stingrays off the Caribbean coast. 
Okay, that's perfect because it kind of answers my next question, which which was just going to be, you know, how have your identities as a Colombian woman and your immigrant identity contributed to and shaped your research interests? So definitely with regard to location, like you mentioned, but has there been anything else that kind of informed what kind of projects you want to work on? Um, well, I've always loved the Caribbean Sea as well. So even though I did want to do something in Colombia, we're lucky to have both Pacific and Atlantic coast. Um, and so I did want to do it specific in, in the Caribbean. And um, I've spent a lot of time in Florida. We have a lot of various immigrants here from the Caribbean, Cuban, Jamaican, Haitian. Um, and so I've always just felt drawn to that general culture, the music, the food, I love to travel to the Caribbean, so um, I was able to also pick other sites in the Caribbean as well that are very different from Colombia in culture, um, but that were still so amazing to visit, like Trinidad and Tobago, um, which is off the coast of Venezuela, and Guadeloupe and Martinique, which are French territories. Very cool. So that sounds like a really great segue into um, my questions about your project specifically. So to start, we'll kind of get some basics down. What is a small-scale fishery? That is a great question. So small-scale is a term that people sometimes use very generally and interchangeably with other terms, but it does have a specific um, definition. And so small-scale really means that the size of the boat is usually small and the size of the crew um, is also small, so just a few people. Um, However, the term small scale can be misleading because small scale might make you think that um, it's not very prominent. Uh, But actually, around 95% of the world fisheries are small scale or artisanal fisheries. Um, And it's estimated that around half of the world's catch come from these small scale fisheries. Um, So they're definitely not small at all. Wow, that's really, really interesting. I didn't know that... um... 95% of fisheries could fall into this category. And then also that half of all the catch in the world is coming from these smaller boats. That's really, really amazing. And I'm just imagining the skill that must go into this because to be a small crew on a small boat and still catching 50% of everything worldwide, that's, that's really, really impressive. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic because usually from the science and research perspective, historically, we have focused more on industrial fisheries, which are these larger boats, which more technology, more capacity, usually more days at sea. Um, But again, the thing with small scale fisheries is that it's just so common throughout the entire world. And so small scale also encompasses other types of fisheries, for example, sport fishing or recreational fishing. Um, So Again, that's usually in a smaller boat with just three or four people. Um, And people, again, usually underestimate the amount of um, impact that recreational or sport fishing has. Uh, Another type of small-scale fishery is artisanal fisheries, which is what I mentioned. And artisanal usually means um, low technology, so handmade gears, sometimes even handmade boats, So when you say artisanal jewelry or artisanal soap, that really just means handmade. And it's the same for um, fisheries. And so artisanal fisheries are also small scale. Um, And then we also have sustenance fisheries, which is just catching to feed yourself. And that also uh, falls under under small scale. 
Um, so there is, again, a wide variety of groups and stakeholders and um, places where these types of fishing are very common. Thank you so much for um, answering that so thoroughly. That That's all really, really useful information. So my next question about your project specifically is what your focus species were. Right. So I was interested in coastal coral reefs. So those were kind of the ecosystem habitats where the project was based on. And specifically, we were just interested in coral reef associated sharks and stingrays. So very general. I know a lot of times when people do a shark um, research project, they focus on one species or maybe three species. But because we were focusing on artisanal fisheries, it was pretty much whatever fishers are catching Um, which is quite a grand variety. Um, So I think in total, we saw around 20 different shark species and around 10 different stingray species. That's awesome. That probably informed a lot about presence of the species in that area as well. There's definitely been some um, other projects that have done, you know, cataloging of species present in the area. Um, But what was really interesting was able to see more of the social side of it. So why are the fishers catching these? What are they used for? You know, are they eating it? Are they trading it? Are they finning it? Or are they discarding it dead because they're, you know, they don't want to be seen with it and they don't want to deal with it. So it was able to kind of complement what other biological studies have done, but it also added the information of, you know, what are some of the potential interests, um, drivers and perceptions that fishers might have about these species that they're catching. Yeah, that's really interesting. I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about the human component to your project, because very often I think that part gets left out of the equation. Yeah, unfortunately, in uh, historical Western science, we tend to view humans as separate from nature and our ecosystems. And I think it's undeniable the impact that we have on uh, our Earth and various habitats and also um, just how much humans have evolved with our techniques and technology to feed ourselves. And so fisheries specifically, because seafood is so important, um, both as a source of protein, but also culturally. I mean, people love sushi. They love ceviche. Um, these dishes are um, important, not just because they're delicious um, and because they keep your belly full, but just for uh, different nations, you know, different dishes have had historical importances. Sometimes they're religious as well. Um, so it's important to include the human component and understand it also because it makes conservation more realistic. Uh, We don't live in this vacuum absent from human impact. And so we need to understand human behavior um, in order to better conserve these species for the future. Absolutely. Um, So how did you actually go about collecting data for this project? What did that data look like? So my collaborators and I collected data in two main methods. Um, One was baited remote underwater video surveys referred to as BRUVs. And so that's pretty much just a GoPro camera that you put uh, one kilo of oily fish bait in front of and you just film, in this case, at coral reefs to see what species show up. And so it's a great method because it gives us information not just on sharks and rays. You can see other fish, you can see crabs, um, octopus. 
In some other regions, they even caught whales, um, dolphins. And so you can gather a lot of information from this video survey. And specifically for sharks, it's a great method because you're not capturing the shark. So you're not stressing the shark. And you really don't want to do that, particularly in regions where shark abundances are already low, like in the Caribbean. Um, the second method that we used was the human component, and that was just face-to-face um, interview survey with fishers. Um, and I was able to do that in a few countries that I mentioned in the Caribbean with the help of local collaborators. And pretty much, you know, we just went around fishing docks, fishing towns, places they were um, cleaning fish, selling fish, and we asked them specific questions about their shark and ray catches and perceptions and um, sort of the reasons and their understandings of these populations. Did you notice any patterns in the general perception of sharks, maybe across all of the areas that you studied or maybe between the areas you studied? Unfortunately, even though there was a big variance in cultural and other drivers, we did see that a large proportion of the fishers noticed a decline in sharks and rays from when they started fishing. So some of the fishers we interviewed had been fishing for five years. Some of them had been fishing for 40. So, of course, this perception does vary with time, um, but a pretty large proportion did perceive less than from whenever they did start fishing. Did you notice that the fishers that you interviewed had any kind of opinion about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing? I think generally the fishers were very well informed about basic ecological concepts. So they were concerned about seeing less species diversities generally, um, maybe not specific to sharks, but just the fish in coral reef areas. They also had concerns about water quality, pollution, Um, and global warming. So they were definitely very aware of some of the key impacts that their ecosystems are suffering. Um, But again, and I don't want to make generalizations, fishers do have um, this interesting relationship with sharks where they are, you know, very afraid of them. Um, They see them as a nuisance species that either ruins their gears or steals their catch away from them. Um, So they don't always have the most positive um, feelings towards sharks, but I think overall they are very very well aware of some concepts that are affecting their livelihood. Very interesting to kind of see the difference in perception there. I can imagine that, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the kind of nuisance species aspect to sharks and their relationship to fishermen. I can imagine that could be a frustrating aspect to being a professional fisherman. So when you merged your kind of interview data with your BRUV data, what kind of conclusions did you find? I think some general conclusions we had were that, you know, fishers are going much further and exploiting much larger areas than we think. Um, And this is just an assumption based on some of the species that they were catching that were more pelagic, deep area species. Um, You know, we did not do an analysis on how far they were traveling or exactly, you know, which areas they were visiting. But some of the species that the fishers reported were not on our cameras. And that's because our cameras were deployed relatively shallow coral reef areas. Again, because coral reef was our target habitat. And so it seems that artisanal fishers 
despite their small boats and small crews, might be going a bit further than um, people thought given their low level of technology. So that was interesting to see that the fishers were reporting some deeper, more pelagic species than what the bruvs saw. And um, similarly, the bruvs did show us um, a few particularly stingray species that are quite small, you know, very bony, not a lot of meat. Um, so that were uh, on the camera, but the fishers did not report them just because, you know, it's not a species worth catching for them or keeping because of the small size and the small meat. Were there any species, any fish that seemed really significant as far as um, sharks and rays go in particular? I mean, significant, I guess it's kind of hard to say, but I, there's some species that are very common in the Caribbean. Nurse sharks continue to be pretty prevalent across all the sites that I sampled. Um, same with southern stingrays. It was the one stingray that you could pretty easily rely to see anywhere on, of the Caribbean sites that we checked. So those two species are kind of known for being very hardy and um, withstanding fishing pressure and being in a variety of habitats. Um, but besides that, there weren't any like interesting or crazy results of species discovered or, or anything like that. Sorry, I should have phrased that differently. I left out an important word. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering whether there were any species that you noticed as you were speaking with these fishermen that were culturally significant. Yes, specifically in Colombia that I can remember, people mentioned eating spotted eagle ray around Easter, around this time, actually. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the connection is with Catholic celebrations and eating this specific ray, uh, but it was something that people reported pretty um, regularly in the interview surveys. And I did not see other uh, places reported with people eating spotted eagle rays. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is quite an interesting little tidbit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I keep thinking like I'm wearing a, an eagle ray shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. I had never really considered that. I mean, you know, you know, you hear that different species of rays and sharks serve as food fish for various groups of people, but I had never considered that a spotted eagle ray would make for good food. Yeah, they don't have much meat, and it is a beautiful fish, but that's what they said, that they uh, liked it around Easter. It was when demand was higher. Very interesting. Wow, cool. <laughs> so you finished your PhD, and... You've done a lot of different work since then, I noticed, but what are you working on now? So since I finished my PhD, I have done a variety of things. I was really lucky to help edit and publish a science textbook based on um, shark science, including diverse voices. And it's called Minorities in Shark Sciences, Diverse Voices in Shark Research. Um, and so that was a big project that undertook a little bit over a year, and I'm very happy to uh, have been a part of and helped miss with that. I've also appeared in a few National Geographic shows on shark attacks. Shark attacks, unfortunately, are one of the most common topics covered in the media with respect to sharks. So I do think it's important to be very clear with the messaging and the explanations of interacting with wildlife when you're outdoors. Um, so I was happy to be in Something Bit Me, 
um, which is streaming on Disney Plus. And then also right now, my job actually kind of expands and those skills that I got from my PhD. And so now um, not only am I working with ocean and fisher issues, but also more terrestrial stuff. So including hunting and um, hunters, the type of food that they catch, that they eat, and just more general um, wildlife viewers and stakeholders. I did want to talk to you more about outreach in particular, because I noticed you've done, you know, a lot of different podcasts and TV shows. You helped write that book for Miss, which is so cool. Um, I'm actually reading it right now. <laughs> Yay! And well, the first chapter is the one that I uh, help write a lot. So, chapter four. Very cool. I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, it's actually how I found your name and thought, wow, that sounds like somebody I would like to interview. But I was just wondering, you know, if you could talk a bit about why outreach is important to you, um, because you seem to spend a significant amount of time on outreach. Yeah, I think outreach is very important for a variety of reasons. Um, I think Sometimes scientists get caught up on being super technical and having uh, really difficult analysis. And sometimes it's like the more difficult and complicated you talk, the more people think you're smart. And unfortunately, um, that doesn't really translate well into policy or just a general public understanding and supporting conservation and conservation policies. And so I think as scientists, we really do um, have a responsibility to explain our science in terms where your grandma can understand it, where your neighbor um, who maybe didn't go to college can understand it because, um, you know, knowledge and science should not be kept in this ivory tower. It should not be this scary, complicated subject. It should be interesting and engaging for everyone Um so that they can therefore make responsible decisions, whether it's uh, voting for conservation policies or just how they decide to spend their money when buying seafood at the supermarket or when going to a restaurant. I definitely am resonating with what you said about scientists using really technical language. And I don't know, I'm getting a sense of elitism almost from a lot of science conversations, I should say, or conversations between scientists specifically. Yeah. I mean, I think the science world and academia um, is very rigorous and it does have this culture of, you know, making your right and keeping you on your toes and uh, making sure you have a good defense for your reasoning. And that, of course, has its good uh, components in keeping the quality of science high. Um, but again, that's, that's not really helpful for the general public or for people making day-to-day decisions um, or even for highly educated, motivated people who might be politicians or they might be in completely different professions and you're out here saying some really complicated things that some really smart people are not able to understand. And so I think that's a huge error. Yeah, 100%. I do, I will say, I try to keep that in mind, you know, specifically for this podcast as well. I try to ask general questions or, you know, not use a lot of technical language unless I'm going to ask about it first so that, you know, whoever is listening has some bit of background information before they go into the more complex topics that we cover. So I do appreciate having somebody who's really interested in outreach on the podcast because 
I feel like you've done a really good job at explaining all of your very technical PhD topics in inaccessible language. Well, thank you. That's definitely something I've been working on and, and evolving. We can always do better when it comes to accessibility um, and making sure our information is accessible to a wide audience with a wide degree of abilities and understandings of the topic. Um, so it's it's always good to kind of just check yourself and make sure that you're talking in topics that are interesting, but also making sure that you're not um, purposely excluding or not even not purposely just excluding people with how intense or difficult you can get sometimes. I mean, I see some scientists that are amazing scientists and they're tweeting their results and, you know, tweets are pretty short. And I'm, me, I have a PhD and I have a hard time understanding what they're saying. Like, I'm a fellow biologist. I'm like, what are you even talking about? So how can you make, you know, someone else passionate and caring for your topic if um, it's hard to process? Yeah, I definitely want to, you know, have more of these conversations with fellow researchers, you know, on and off the podcast to make sure that our research is accessible to people who, yeah, might either not have those higher levels of education because they don't have access or just don't, you know, don't have the desire. Um, And then also, yeah, people who do have very high levels of education, but just in other fields. So you talked a bit about working with MIS, Minorities in Shark Science. How does DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, play into your research or your work right now? Um, Well, I think DEI is inherent in my research um, just because it's inherent in, in society and in human behavior. And like I was mentioning, you know, fisheries and fishing is very um, biased by human behavior and understanding. And so in the Caribbean, there's a lot of Black culture and Black populations. And a lot of the fishers, particularly in the Caribbean, are Black. And so um, seeing how fisher knowledge and fishers' opinions might not necessarily be included in the conservation discord discourse or it's not included in policymaking or it's not included in science um, really heightened that for me that the people who are day-to-day interacting with um, these fish and these habitats, the people who day-to-day depend on them are unfortunately um, not included in a lot of the conservation and decision-making. And that's obviously something that's not unique to the fisheries world. It's something that is prevalent across society uh, with Black communities not being able to uh, voice their concerns and being able to uh, have their input included in a lot of um, important decision making. Um, So that was one big aspect. Another one is also the gender aspect. A lot of fishers are men. Even the word that people use, fishermen, uh, tends to make that assumption on gender. And so as a woman in the fisheries world interacting with a lot of fishers. Um, That was obviously something that um, came up a lot for me, that even though we we usually think of men as the fishermen, women have a big impact in artisanal and small-scale fisheries. A lot of the time when the men were done fishing and they came back, it was the women who cleaned the fish, sold the fish, traded the fish, dealt with the money, Um, And so they're just as important to um, the fisheries economic component. But again, uh, we usually think of men in this um, livelihood or uh, profession. 
And so DEI is just um, really important because we need a diversity in knowledge, in experiences and everything for a, a realistic solution to conservation that the community will actually support and care for. And specifically with MIS, um, you know, MIS also is inherently focused on DEI. It was funded by four Black women in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Um, it sparked a lot of con- conversation about um, Black representation in marine science and shark science. And so they created this amazing NGO that's really snowballed into great success. Um, and I was um, a colleague with one of the founders, and I've been able to just sort of support any of their efforts that um, I'm lucky to be invited on. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Miss member myself, and it's just you know even spending a little bit of time looking through their social media or their Slack channel, it is just such a supportive environment that the four founders have built. And yeah, I appreciate it so much. So yeah, thank you for your efforts um, towards writing that book and any other missed projects that you've contributed to. It's, it's very much appreciated as somebody who is kind of within the community, but not, um, I haven't done a lot, you know, with Miss yet, hopefully more in the future. Yeah, they have lots of great opportunities and they're working on some really cool stuff and um, it's quickly expanding. So I'm really excited to see what the future holds. So that kind of covers what I had planned for us to talk about. Is there anything else that you would like to mention before we move on to your final five questions? Um, No, I just thank you so much for inviting me and talking about these subjects. Like you said, I think science communication is really important. And so I'm really glad that there are people doing podcasts on science and fisheries and making it um, fun and easy to digest for the audience. So thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for making the time to come on the show. It's It's been really awesome. So for the final five questions, um, these are five questions that we ask every person who comes on the podcast. We started off pretty easy with the question, what's your favorite fish? That is actually a very hard question. <laughs> That's what everybody says. <laughs> um, well, it would have to be a shark, even though I do love a variety of non-shark fish. Um, and even within the shark world, there's such great diversity, it's hard to pick. But... I guess I would have to say it's the great hammerhead. I love hammerhead species, all of them. They're all very interesting. And the great hammerhead is just, you know, king of all. I completely agree. Hammerhead or great hammerheads in particular are my favorite shark. And when I was a guest on the podcast, I felt a little bit pressured to not choose a shark. But yeah, if I had chosen a shark, it would definitely be the great hammerhead. They're so cool. They're the best. So what is your favorite memory from your career so far? I think one of the best moments of my career was when I actually, on a personal level, defended my PhD. It was such a long life dream that I had to be a shark scientist and to do research in my home country. And so to be able to get up and give this one hour talk on what I had spent six long years of my life doing with my family there was such an amazing moment. 
And I guess on a non-personal level, one of the most interesting moments I've had in my career um, was one time when I was doing work with the fishers in Colombia. They caught a huge catch of tuna. It was one ton, which as you can imagine for artisanal fishers, one ton is a lot of fish to catch and haul and process. And so it was a great day for them. It was great catch. They had a big party. Um, and, you know, it was kind of like a tuna festival. And, and I was really happy for them that day. And I was happy to witness um, a really successful moment for them. And fast forward a couple weeks later, I'm in Miami in my apartment and I'm hungry and I just kind of want to make a quick meal. And I go and I grab um, just a can of tuna and I make it with some rice. And I'm like, I wonder where this tuna's from. And I checked underneath the can and it said, you know, caught in Colombia. And I was like, it's crazy that, you know, there's a small chance that this tuna or that these fishers that I witnessed are the ones that ended up, you know, all the way in the United States in a can for me to eat on a casual, um, you know, Monday. And so it really brought to me this connection of, again, you know, what is happening in the ocean and what the fishers are experiencing with a regular person's regular decision to eat a meal and have some seafood. Yeah, that's really incredible that you were able to make that connection between the people catching the tuna and then potentially eating that tuna <laughs> or something like it, at least. Right. It was. It was shocking to turn the can over and, and see where it had been caught in the date and the year. I think it had like the month and the year. And I was like, wow, that's like this is why I'm researching this so that people can continue to eat delicious seafood um, and fishers can continue to have a profession and a livelihood, um, but in the way that populations stocks are conserved and, um, you know, continue to exist for decades to come. Very cool. An awesome full circle moment. I love that. Yeah. It was a long answer, but, um, I guess I had to give both. No, worth it. Very much worth it. <laughs> so what is your dream job or location? Oh, that's a great one. Um, dream job, I can't think of a specific title, but I think it would be a job where I actually get to be in the ocean on a daily basis, uh, dive and snorkel and interact with sharks. Um, unfortunately, in my career as a shark fishery scientist, I've seen a lot of shark carcasses, a lot of dead sharks, um, shark body parts. And even though I totally understand that from a professional perspective, um, just for my own happiness, I would love to get more experience with sharks that are alive and get to see them more, um, you know, swimming in their environment. If money were not an issue, what is one project that you'd love to work on? That is great. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody's still, <laughs> somebody give me this idea. I would love to create a documentary style show where we highlight the connection between seafood and cooking and a recipe and the cultural value of that recipe and those ingredients and a fisher catching that seafood. Um, I think people love cooking shows. People love to cook and eat. They love food. Um, and people also love documentary shows about the ocean. I mean, I feel like almost everybody that I run to that I say I'm a marine biologist, they say, oh, I love documentaries or I love National Geographic. I love Shark Week. 
Um, so it would be great to, again, make that connection between eating some sushi, eating ceviche, um, you know, eating some surf and turf lobster and um, with the people who are making that possible for us and catching it. I really love that idea because I'm thinking back now about how many documentaries there are about where food comes from, specifically like animal related food mm -hmm. and how very often it's like a documentary about going vegan or something. Right. And it's scaring people <laughs> about right. where their food comes from. But okay. I'm thinking, you know, about what you just described and how you could really make it more about people who are catching and preparing this food and presenting it as a good thing. Right. Yeah. I really love that idea. That sounds really cool. And I would definitely watch it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I hope one day uh, to make it come true, either as a producer or, um, you know, just a science advisor or whatever, I think. Um, I love cooking shows. I love cooking myself. Um, I love seafood. I think sometimes people find it contradictory that I'm a marine biologist and I love seafood, um, but it's the truth. Yeah, I, I, I was not a seafood eater for a really long time because I, I'm from the Midwest, so we don't really right. <laughs> have, like we have seafood here, but it was always like, okay, I don't know where this is from, so I'm not gonna, right. I'm not gonna be part of this. <laughs> But more recently, as I've been an adult and I've become more knowledgeable about sustainable seafood practices, I'm kind of branching into it a little more. And I'm definitely looking forward to what comes out of projects like yours, where we can see where our food comes from and who's really, you know, benefiting from it. Not just the consumer, but the person who really like brought that food to your table. Um, yeah, right. I can see, I can kind of feel us as a society moving in that direction. We definitely are. And there's even, you know, more, uh, food shows on foraging and, you know, local and green and stuff like that. So I just want the seafood specific version of that. And I would love it if it was specific to a culture, you know, like sushi and make that episode specific to Japanese culture and history around fishing and then do the ceviche one in Peru and Peruvian culture around their oceans and their fishing and something like that, because we all love going to these restaurants and eating this food. So it'd be great to tie it all in with, with the culture and, and the ocean where it's coming from and the people who are making it work. I love that. I'm like, I'm, the wheels in my head are turning. I'm like, you could have an episode about oyster farming. It's exactly. So I love cool. oysters. I mean, there's so many, good options and um, stories behind it as well. All right. We're at our, uh, our final question of the final five. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Make responsible decisions when you are picking your food and your seafood options. I think a lot of people feel so disconnected from their food source and they're like, there, there's nothing I can do. What can I do to save sharks? Like, you know, I'm just in the middle yeah, of Michigan. There's not even an ocean here. Like, what am I supposed to do to help this? And it's like, well, you're making a responsible, hopefully, 
choice um, with your dollars every time you go to the supermarket and you buy salmon or every time you go to brunch and get some oysters. Um, People are making daily decisions about their food. And if I could program anything, I would love people to make daily, responsible, sustainable decisions when eating seafood. Yeah, I think we often underestimate what our, our choices have an impact on as consumers. And yeah, it is, I will say it's hard to make sustainable or it's hard to make choices with regard to sustainability when you don't live near an ocean and you're like, I have no idea where this came from. So, you know, right. I it's feel like, difficult for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of mislabeling as well and mm-hmm. lack of transparency. So you might even think you're buying one fish and it's a different one. Um, but, you know, just making as informed of a decision as possible, given your environment and local supermarket and availability of information. Yeah, definitely. I like that. And that's super, you know, it's on brand for your <laughs> for your project. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, it was such a pleasure to hear about all of your work um, and kind of just chat about being a scientist and the responsibility that we have. So if people want to find more information about your work or get a hold of you, um, how would they do that? Um, well, the main two places that I give out science and fisheries, marine biology information are on my webpage. I have a blog. It's my name, um, www. CamilaCaceres.com. So that's C-A-M-I-L-A-C-A-C-E-R-E-S. And that's my website. And then also I am relatively active on Twitter talking about science and fisheries topics. And that's Dr. Caceres 13. So D-R-C-A-C-E-R-E-S 1-3. And um, you can also find me on Instagram, but Instagram is more of a random mishmash of my life, food, travel, uh, not specific only to ocean and fisheries, but um, you can also follow me there. And that's the same as my Twitter, Dr. Casadis 13 Awesome. And if anybody would like to get a hold of me or the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or via email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Elise. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, make responsible seafood buying choices.